welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for September 2nd, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, Rulings Editor here at the Daily Journal, and I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of our program. Your source, each Friday, for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week's show regards three critical appellate rulings from three different courts. The first, a massive personal jurisdiction decision for Monday that split the California Supreme Court four to three and opened state courthouse doors wider to non-resident plaintiffs bringing suit against non-resident defendants, here a drug manufacturer. The second case issued from the Ninth Circuit last week and regarded a citywide minimum wage ordinance for hotel workers that, challengers claimed, should have been preempted by the National Labor Relations Act. And the third case from the Fourth Appellate District and filed earlier this month settles what had been an uncertain issue in real estate law, whether statutes of limitation can apply in suits challenging deeds that were void at their inception. Sharon Arkin of the Arkin Law Firm will join first to discuss that personal jurisdiction case from the Cal Supreme Court, Bristol-Myers Squibb v. Superior Court. Ms. Arkin filed an amicus brief supporting the real parties and interests there, who were the non-resident plaintiffs bringing claims in San Francisco Superior Court over complications caused by Bristol-Myers' pharmaceutical drug Plavix. As Bristol-Myers is incorporated in Delaware and operates principally in New York, the company moved to quash service of the complaint, but the Superior Court deemed general jurisdiction proper. Due to Bristol-Myers' sundry research and sales operations in California, an appellate panel affirmed, though on the basis of specific personal jurisdiction, and the state high court Monday added its imprimatur to that result in a ruling that the three-justice minority, headed by Justice Werdegar, suggests has unmoored the doctrine of specific personal jurisdiction. Then Michael Newman of Hinshaw and Culbertson will chat about the Ninth Circuit ruling upholding a Los Angeles ordinance requiring a certain minimum wage for hotel workers throughout the city, a quirk in the ordinance, namely that hotels employing union workers are exempt from it, makes the ordinance, according to Mr. Newman, arguably vulnerable to National Labor Relations Act preemption as an impermissible intrusion on the mechanics of collective bargaining. Nonetheless, the Ninth Circuit panel upheld the ordinance in an opinion that relegated analysis of that union exemption to just a few scant paragraphs. And finally, Jerry Mooney, partner at Rutan and Tucker, will join to discuss a real estate ruling from the 4th Appellate District, Walters v. Boozinger, which cleared up an uncertain property law question by determining that statutes of limitation may indeed apply to quiet title actions brought challenging deeds that were potentially void ab initio, or from their inception. But before we get to my guests, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this show. It's very simple. Just look for a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, let's move on now to my conversation with Ms. Sharon Arkin. Happy to be joined now by Ms. Sharon Arkin, principal at the Arkin Law Firm, who practices in a wide range of areas, including uh, products liability, personal injury, and, and other consumer case law. In 2010, she was named a California Magazine Attorney of the Year, and she filed an amicus brief on behalf of the real parties in interest in this case that we're talking about today. Ms. Arkin, thanks for being on the program. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. So this case, the California Supreme Court ruling filed Monday in, in Bristol-Myers Squibb versus Superior Court of San Francisco, pertains to, to personal jurisdiction. And um, I think it's probably important to note out here at the top, there's essentially sort of three parties here to, to know about. There's obviously Bristol-Myers Squibb, the defendant, the drug manufacturer, and then two separate cohorts of plaintiffs, some in-state California plaintiffs and a larger number of, of out-of-state 
non-resident plaintiffs. And their claims are very similar. They took a, a Bristol-Myers drug, Plavix, suffered some unfortunate side effects and, and brought suit in, in California. But Bristol-Myers, incorporated in, in Delaware and having its principal place of business in New York, moved to, to quash service of summons based on personal jurisdiction, it being an out-of-state defendant. And um, at least in terms of the non-resident plaintiffs, you know, them not um, having a tremendously great tie to the forum state here, California. But uh, the trial court ruled against Bristol Myers Squibb, right? They uh, they did not quash the service. Tell me about that ruling. Well, what what the trial court did, and this was before the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Daimler versus Bauman came out, which we'll probably be referring to later. But that's the new cutting edge U.S. Supreme Court case on general jurisdiction. And before that decision had come out, the trial court looked at all of Bristol-Myers' extensive activity in California and concluded that based on that, there was continuous, systematic, extensive conduct here. The trial court held that there was general jurisdiction over Bristol-Myers' squib. In the trial court, they also argued that special jurisdiction applied as well under a different analysis, but the trial court didn't even reach that determination. It just went with general jurisdiction. So general jurisdiction was found, and, and Bristol-Myers Squibb was going to be sued then in San Francisco Superior Court. Um, of course, it appealed that decision, and the, the California Intermediate Appellate Court affirmed, but I, I think there was something interesting there. They didn't affirm based on general jurisdiction, right? They affirmed on different grounds? Right. They actually found, well, and the procedural process is a little bit interesting in that case. Uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb took a writ to the Court of Appeal. The court summarily denied the writ, saying we're not going to give you interim review on this. It's not an appealable order, and sent it back. Um, the same day that the Daimler decision came out by the U.S. Supreme Court, which really is sort of the watershed case. So they they petitioned, Bristol-Meyer petitioned for review to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court remanded it to the Court of Appeal to be considered in light of the Daimler decision. So then the Court of Appeal took the issue, and it completely flipped the trial court's findings. It said that there is no general jurisdiction because under Daimler, the court didn't find that Bristol-Myers was at home in California. It had extensive and continuous and systematic business in California, but it wasn't actually at home here under the Daimler analysis. So, but it, then it, even though the trial court hadn't examined the special jurisdiction issue, the Court of Appeal did, and it said that under the special jurisdiction analysis, there was jurisdiction even over claims pursued by the non-resident plaintiffs. So um, slightly different ruling there based on specific jurisdiction, but the claims of the non-residents can go forward. But of course, again, the defendants appeal to the California Supreme Court, and, and that high court considered both of those questions, whether general jurisdiction could be proper and also whether specific could be proper. Now, in, in the amicus brief that you filed, you contended that the general jurisdiction could apply to Bristol-Myers Squibb in, in California. The Supreme Court ended up holding differently that general jurisdiction was not proper. But why, in your opinion, could general jurisdiction have been um, rightly applied here? And, and why did the court feel differently? Well, I, I was trying to argue, basically, that the ruling or the uh, rationale in Daimler went way beyond the facts in Daimler. And the facts in Daimler are, are fairly important because what it was is it was Argentinian residents suing a German parent corporation in California under the 
Alien Tort Act. And the problem there was nobody really had, and it was out of, you know, out of state residents, out of state company, no real tie to the state at all, um, except for the extensive business operations of the German parent American subsidiary. So it was a pretty tenuous contact, and I was hoping that our court would recognize that the, the facts underlying the rationale are different, and even the U.S. Supreme Court authority confirms that where the facts are different, the rationale doesn't necessarily apply. So I was hoping for that. My hopes weren't very high. I also hoped that our court would address the consent issue. In other words, by qualifying to do business in California, which Bristol-Myers did, they applied to the Secretary of State under our corporation's laws to do business in California, that that would constitute consent to jurisdiction. There's a 1936 federal case on that issue in California, which was picked up by a 1986 Court of Appeal decision, and has that sort of been the what's been followed without analysis. And I was hoping we could get the Supreme Court to address that um, and do an actual analysis. It mentioned it in the decision, but just pretty much blew it off. And on the general jurisdiction issue from Daimler, our Supreme Court just marched in lockstep with Daimler and applied Daimler very broadly and found no basis for distinguishing the facts in this case from the facts in Daimler. Notwithstanding some connections that Bristol-Myers has to California that you touched on, I think those included things like having research labs and, and having a number of sales employees in the state and also, I believe, having an office in Sacramento to, to lobby the California legislature. Right, exactly. So there were, there's clearly continuous and systematic conduct by Bristol-Myers in California. But for general jurisdiction purposes, one of the problems is under Daimler, it's a proportionality assessment, sort of, um, where you look at what the, the defendant is doing in that in a particular state, and you look at what the defendant's doing everywhere else. And if the everywhere else is so substantially greater than in the state, or even a little bit greater than what's going on within that specific state, the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, then they, they can't be at home there. They basically said they can't be home everywhere they do business. So you have to have some really high-level basis for finding them, quote, at home in a state other than where their principal place of business is or their nerve center or state of incorporation. So the California Supreme Court just marched in lockstep with that analysis and found that in this case, even though Bristol-Myers had extensive business contacts and business activity and actually earned almost a billion dollars in six years in California, that that wasn't sufficient to make them be, quote, at home for purposes of general jurisdiction. Okay, so general jurisdiction is not proper here then, and the California Supreme Court, after its analysis on that point, moves on to discuss specific personal jurisdiction. And maybe before we get to that analysis, could you just briefly lay out to me what exactly the, the specific personal jurisdiction doctrine is all about uh, and, and how it's distinct from general personal jurisdiction? General jurisdiction, for example, if you're suing in the state of incorporation of the corporation on a case 
that's completely unrelated to that state, has nothing to do with that state. The injury occurred elsewhere. The, the purchase was made elsewhere. Everything about that case and where the, the contract was negotiated elsewhere, wh- how, whatever claim it is, everything about the claim arose in a different state. General jurisdiction says that's okay because this is where the corporation is at home, so you can sue them there because they should be expect to be hailed into court where they're at home, just like an individual. The court really analogizes it to individual jurisdiction, and a, a corporation like an individual is at home there where they reside, where their domicile is, and they can be sued there no matter what the case is, where it arose, or how it arose. Special jurisdiction is different, and I'll give you the law school version first, and then we'll talk about what the California Supreme Court did with that. The The law school version is that if there's a, le- a level of minimum contacts of activity by the corporate defendant in the state, if the injury is related to those minimum contacts, to the activity that the defendant engages in in the state, if it's related to that, and related to is the whole key here, that's what we're really going to be focusing on. But our law school understanding of that has been, and I went to law school a long time ago, but (laughs) (laughs) the the law school understanding of that was that there had to be a direct link. It was almost a causation requirement for the in-state activity causing the injury. That was sufficiently related. And then sort of a third catch-all category is it still had to be fair and reasonable in a constitutional sense to allow that defendant to be sued in this state, which was not where they were, quote, at home. So those those were the three elements. That's sort of the law school analysis. What the California Supreme Court has done actually over the course of time since at least 1996 is conclude that the relatedness issue is broader than it had. There had to be a direct link, or there had to be an actual causation tie between the minimum contacts and the actual injury itself. So that relatedness prong is the second step, as you mentioned. But first, uh, the court analyzes whether there's some minimum contacts between the defendant here and the state. What did it have to say about about those contacts? Well, <laughs> and what all the cases say is that it has to be assessed on a case-by-case basis, which pretty much gives you room to roam all over the place. But there really has to be some fairly... Sometimes the U.S. Supreme Court uses the term continuous and systematic. Sometimes it uses that in conjunction with um, general jurisdiction. Sometimes it uses that term in conjunction with special jurisdiction. Either way... If you can show continuous and systematic activity by the defendant within the state, you're going to meet that prong. And, and Bristol-Myers did that here. There's no question. I mean, they, like you said, they had offices here. They had employees here. Um, they had research facilities here. They did a billion dollars worth of business in six years, de- derived directly and solely from California. So I don't think there was much question on that issue. The court went through it and did the analysis, but I think it was pretty straightforward. There are a lot of cases that there's far less um, actual activity that still meet the threshold. And I think and it, what's interesting is the California Supreme Court in its Vons Company case, the 1996 case I referred to, 
actually said there's an inverse proportionality between the minimum contacts requirement and the relatedness requirement. And the more contacts you have, the less relatedness you need. So if you've got a case where there there aren't a lot of contacts, it better be pretty tightly related. But if you have a case where there are lots of contacts, you know, then your relatedness analysis is going to get a little broader. It's interesting because, as you say, when you're in your first-year civil procedure class and you're taught about these different prongs of specific personal jurisdiction, you, you don't necessarily think of the first one, the contacts, and the second one, relatedness, you know, sort of being part of one analysis. They sort of sound separate. One, you have the contact, and then two, you have the relatedness, you know, the claim arising from one of those contacts. So perhaps to give an illustration in a case similar to one like this, say Bristol-Myers sells Plavix in California. One of these non-resident plaintiffs happens to be in California, buys the drug there, uh, and then is harmed. You know, that, that seems like it would have, it would have the, the connection, the, the selling of the drug, and then the relatedness would be to that specific connection, the sale of the drug. Um, but as you say, it doesn't seem like it's quite that cut and dry in the analysis here. You can, you can have less relatedness when there's more connections. Right. And, and interestingly, your example is one that Justice Werdiger used in her dissent in the Bristol-Myers case and talked about. She, she hewed to the old-school, law-school perception that relatedness requires a direct link, an actual causative link almost. Um, but the majority disagreed. It's interesting in reading that analysis of the majority and, and sort of um, hearing that uh, a bit of balance that goes on it, it struck me as sounding a bit like general personal jurisdiction, the fact that if there's so many contacts, then the claim doesn't need to arise specifically from one of them. That's sort of a, it could arise from something else and the company could be sued simply more so because they have a high number of contacts. Is it fair for me to have gotten that sense that it just sounds a bit like general jurisdiction, what the court here is describing as specific? I know, it does. But actually, there is a distinction. It may be a very fine distinction. It may be a distinction that doesn't apply in a whole lot of cases, but I think it's a very important distinction. Let me give you an example. Say, for example, the plaintiff at issue lived in Missouri and came to California to sue Bristol-Myers because of all of Bristol-Myers' contacts with California but sued on a, about a drug that was only distributed by Bristol-Myers in Missouri. That's the only state that it sold this drug was Missouri. That would not apply even under this special jurisdiction analysis of the, US, of the California Supreme Court in Bristol-Myers because there still has to be a relatedness link. The link in the Bristol-Myers case was that, that the out-of-state residents who used this drug were all subject to exactly the same conduct that the California plaintiffs were. The California plaintiffs were subjected to Bristol-Myers' misconduct, malfeasance, allegedly, as a result of, number one, its design of a, of a dangerous drug, two, its distribution of a dangerous drug, three, its marketing of a dangerous drug, the manner in which it marketed the dangerous drug. All that was nationwide. Everybody was the victim of the same conduct, whether it was in California or Missouri. So what the California Supreme Court said in Bristol-Myers is that's enough. That's related. It's a very broad definition of what's related. And I think it's real important to go back to 
the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in International Shoe and some of its later decisions where they talk about to have specific jurisdiction, there has to be a tie to the conduct. It has to be arising from or related to. Well, arising from is what you and I learned in law school that it has to, there has to be a direct link, even, even almost a causation link between the conduct in the state and the injury. But that's just arising from. If you're going to add the term or related to, you're much broader than what arising from means. You're, it covers a lot more territory than arising from. And that's basically what the California Supreme Court discussed in Bristol Myers are saying it's it's not just a direct link, it's not a causative link. It's as long as everybody in state and out of state have been subjected to the same misconduct, then people from out of state can also sue because it's related to the conduct that harmed the California plaintiffs. Okay, so that relatively broad construal of, of relatedness satisfies prong two, and then we get to, to prong three, which is sort of just a, a bit of a reasonableness analysis, whether it, it seems generally fair to, to haul the defendant into this forum. Um, there's some interesting factors that come into the analysis here. I thought, like, um, one, you know, sort of the standard burden on the defendant to come to a particular forum here in California, um, but also things like the interest of California to provide the forum and also um, broader principles like interstate judicial efficiency, something you don't always hear a lot about when, in policy <laughs> analysis. Yeah. And and I think in terms of the impact on the defendant, and I've I've had a lot of questions from a lot of people about that. Isn't that, isn't that a big deal? And it really isn't. It's not a big deal because Bristol-Myers is going to have to litigate these cases somewhere. They're going to have to litigate these cases. They don't get to dodge the bullet. So whether they litigate them in California, whether they litigate them in Missouri, whether they litigate them in every single state in the union, doesn't it seem more practical for them to litigate a lot of them in California? Now, of course, they don't like California law. But as the Supreme Court pointed out in the Bristol-Meyer decision, the conflicts of law issue doesn't feed into the jurisdictional analysis. So conflicts of law is a, is a set-aside issue. So the fact that they may not like California law won't necessarily control the jurisdictional issue or the law that gets applied, because if somebody sues from Missouri, it's very likely that under choice of law principles, Missouri law will apply. So they still get the protection of the different states' laws. They're just doing it all more efficiently in one place. Um, the burden on the California judicial system is more of a concern um, in terms of if you start getting hundreds and thousands and thousands of cases, maybe that's something. But it really, it's it's an internal concern. It doesn't affect the constitutional analysis. And that's the whole point here. This is, this is an analysis that determines whether or not it's constitutionally fair to the defendant to have them subjected to jurisdiction in another case, in another state, I'm sorry. Bristol-Myers knows it's going to be sued in California. It's going to be here. It's a multinational corporation. It's distributed its drugs everywhere. It's going to get sued in California, so it's going to be here either way. 
So really, what is the constitutional impact of the fact that it's litigating some other cases here as well? And I don't think there is one, and the California Supreme Court didn't think there was one either. Yeah, so the majority concludes then that that specific personal jurisdiction was proper here, obviously, um, to the consternation of three justices headed by Justice Wurdegar, who wrote the minority opinion here. Um, in her opinion, as you said, she, she listed a number of ways where connections rightly could have been found to support specific jurisdiction. Um, and she says you know, none of them existed. And it seems like one of her biggest concerns is that such a broad construal of the specific personal jurisdiction doctrine, at least in her opinion, provides her some unpredictability that companies might be really uncertain as to whether what they're doing in a particular form would be enough to merit specific jurisdiction there. Um, what would you say to her to assure her that um, specific jurisdiction doctrine has not become entirely unmoored? Well, and there are a couple of things. One of them I have already discussed. Every case has, every opinion says it has to be decided on a case-by-case basis anyway. So there's no hard and fast rule. The, the U.S. Supreme Court in Daimler established a hard and fast rule, sort of, <laughs> for general <laughs> jurisdiction. And said these, these two places, state of incorporation, principal place of business, no question, you can be sued. It closed the door almost all the way as to any place else, but it did leave a crack in the window that if there are other places where the corporation's activities are so predominant that that could be another place too. So that that debate hasn't been finished, even there. Even though it's as bright line as you could probably get, it isn't completely bright line. The, Cal- the U.S. Supreme Court never said, these are the two places and the only two places ever. So that debate's still open. On special jurisdiction, it's all debate. It's all, you know, a question of what are the circumstances. And the, the more, uh, and this, I think this is critically important, the more a corporation operates in a state, the more revenue it derives from the state, the more likely it can get sued in that state, whether by in-state residents or out-of-state residents. The fact that some out-of-state residents are suing there shouldn't make that much difference. They're gonna, they're operating in the state, and if they don't want to risk that, if they don't want to have jurisdiction in California over out-of-state claims and pull out of California, they're free to do that. What's the reality? They won't do it. This is too big a market. This is too important a market. They're not going to leave California. A billion dollars in six years, really? So I, I just don't see that happening. I don't see that as a concern. And again, it goes back to there, ha- there still has to be relatedness. It can't just be the guy in Missouri suing about a different drug. That's not good enough. If the activity that occurred in California is not the same as the activity that occurred in Missouri then that's not going to be good enough. So as Daimler narrowed general jurisdiction, Bristol-Myers has expanded or broadened special jurisdiction. But the result is I don't think the gap between them has really changed that much. And I think that's what I would say to Justice Werdiger. We're not, we're shifting the boundaries, but we're not changing the gap between them. Speaking of, you know, the two cases, Daimler and, and this one, the other main objection, it seems like of the minority is that those two cases can't 
in their opinion, coexist, that, that this ruling contravenes the, at least the, the spirit or the letter of, of Daimler. Um, in your opinion, can these two cases coexist? You know, it's interesting because even in Daimler, as you know, Justice Sotomayor objected pretty vociferously to the majority's analysis in Daimler. She agreed with the result, but she objected to the rationale. And Justice Ginsburg's response to Justice Sotomayor's objections was basically, what, what's your problem? Special jurisdiction can cover the loss. That She didn't say it that way, but that's fundamentally what she was alluding to. She was saying Justice Sotomayor's objections make it sound like special jurisdiction is a non-entity. Special jurisdiction is very broad. And so it, it, it actually reinforces the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court may think that special jurisdiction can apply more extensively than we've been thinking up till now. So maybe this is the sort of ground, uh, in this case, that the Supreme Court in Daimler foresaw that special jurisdiction could cover, even if general general jurisdiction could not. Right. If if you listen to what, <laughs> if you listen to footnote 10 in Daimler, you could get that impression. <laughs> sure. Okay, well then, suggesting the cases can be compatible, what do you think the chances are that this ruling might find its way onto the Supreme Court docket, the U.S. Supreme Court docket? Well, I'm sure Bristol-Myers will petition for cert. Um, I think one thing that's interesting, if you read the Court of Appeal decision in Bristol-Myers-Squibb, um, that decision really presaged the Supreme Court's decision in this case. But it did a little more thorough analysis, really, on the relatedness in terms of what the California Supreme Court has said before. And in 1996, in the Vons case, the California Supreme Court started with this, you know, it's not really a direct tie, it's not a direct link, it's not a causative link, it's broader than that, um, it's got this inverse proportionality between contacts and relatedness. Um, that came out in 1996 by the California Supreme Court, and cert was denied in that case. Then in 2005, the the Court of Appeal in Bristol-Myers-Squibb also cited to another California Supreme Court case from 2005 called the Snowney case, and that case was even more explicit. The California Supreme Court was more explicit even there about this relatedness issue and how broad it is and how it's inverse proportion. And that went up on cert, and the U.S. Supreme Court denied it. So this didn't just come as a bolt out of the blue. This has been a, a analysis developed over the course of time in California, and the U.S. Supreme Court has never seen fit to challenge it. The U.S. Supreme Court may take the Bristol-Myers cert petition in order to affirm that that is the breadth of special jurisdiction, or in order to say, no, no, that's too broad, you've stepped over the line, we're not going to go with that. I can't tell you, I think if Justice Scalia were still alive, I'd be a lot more worried. Given the current constitution of the court, and especially with Justice Ginsburg commenting that special jurisdiction is not as restrict as indicated by Justice Sotomayor, you know, it's possible that they could go with us on that, but they could go the other way, too. I mean, I, I don't ever bet on any court's decision on anything. <laughs> sure, that's probably a safe way to play. Well, I think we'll, 
we'll leave it there for now. And I'm going to count myself fortunate for not needing to take a civil procedure exam anytime soon, needing to delineate the contours of specific personal jurisdiction based on this case. You and me both. <laughs> okay. Well, Miss Sharon Arkin of the Arkin Law Firm, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. Once again, that was Sharon Arkin of the Arkin Law Firm discussing the Bristol Myers Squibb personal jurisdiction case for Monday. We'll move now to my chat with Mr. Michael Newman. We're very pleased now to be joined by Michael Newman, a partner with Hinshaw and Culbertson. Mr. Newman has a wide range of practice areas, including commercial litigation, insurance law, and pertinent here, especially employment litigation. And not least of all, Mr. Newman regularly contributes columns to the Daily Journal. Mr. Newman, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. We're chatting today about the case out of the Ninth Circuit from last Thursday, American Hotel and Lodging Association and the Asian American Hotel Owners Association versus the city of Los Angeles, which raises the question as to whether a a citywide minimum wage ordinance pertaining to hotel workers was preempted by the National Labor Relations Act. The appellate panel held that it was not so preempted. But before we get into that opinion, perhaps you could tell me a bit about this wage ordinance, I understand. As I said, it's a bit of a minimum wage type ordinance, and it's not especially unique. It seems like it's one in a series of, of ordinances of this variety that tend to look to raise the wages of certain classes of workers in the city of Los Angeles. Is that right? That's correct. So the wage ordinance by the city of L.A. provided, among other provisions, an increased minimum wage for workers at select hotels, particularly large hotels citywide with uh, more than 150 rooms and also some smaller hotels near LAX. As you said, it was a kind of targeted minimum wage ordinance aimed at a very, very select particular group of employees. I think the appellate panel also makes a point that there have been previous ones, including ones, I think, pertaining to to airport workers and other classes of workers that, that had come before this ordinance and not been successfully challenged. That's right. Can you tell me a bit about the parties that brought suit here, these two associations of hotel owners, and can you tell me what they sought? So uh, you had two groups here. You had the American Hotel and Lodging Association, and you also had the Asian American Hotel Owners Association. And these are trade associations. They represent groups of hotels. Trade associations generally, they represent the interests of a particular group uh, of business. So here they were challenging uh, this ordinance. What they did is they said that it was preempted by the NLRA. It's important, though, when you're discussing this wage ordinance to understand that it it didn't just provide for minimum wage. It also provided for what I think is actually a, a very important aspect, which I think the Ninth Circuit dealt with kind of towards the end. But I, to me, it's the two things combined. So you have the minimum wage um, ordinance, but you also have, uh, importantly, an opt-out provision, which uh, allows hotels covered by a collective bargaining agreement to waive the requirements of the ordinance. Uh, it also had a hardship waiver. So what does that mean? That means that um, hotels were required to pay this minimum wage unless there was a collective bargaining agreement, which means that unless, you know, you had unionized employees. So in, in, a, in a subtle and not so subtle way, the, the, the law made it, you know, kind of a carrot and a stick for employers to uh, perhaps want their employees to be uh, unionized because in that case, they could potentially avoid the effect of the ordinance. I think the reasoning behind that probably, if you were to ask 
the legislature, you know, why they passed that opt-out provision. I think what they probably would have said is that employees need this protection that we're providing through this law because they don't really have the power as an indiv- and individuals to bargain for better conditions and better wages. So we're going to step in and do that. But if they have, you know, a union representation, then presumably the union representation has their back and might decide that they're okay with their employees not being paid as much because maybe at the bargaining table they'll get some other concessions, some other benefits that they decide are are worth trading. I I think if you were to ask them, they'd say that was the purpose behind that opt-out provision. We'll probably delve into that exception just a little bit more in, in a few minutes. But first, could you perhaps lay out a bit more context in terms of the NLRA and how it applies to this case specifically, what uh, what exactly does that piece of federal legislation provide for? Right. So the NLRA stands for the National Labor Relations Act. It was passed in 1935. Its purpose was to protect the rights of employees and employers, particularly in the area of collective bargaining. It was meant to prevent certain practices that would suppress the ability of, of employees to collectively bargain. And so it, it doesn't have any express preemption provisions. There's no parts of the law that say, you know, this kind of law and that kind of law passed by state or city legislatures are going to be preempted. But the Supreme Court has developed a couple of areas of preemption just through the case law. Perhaps could you enlighten me a bit as to those types of preemptions? I believe the Ninth Circuit panel identified a couple with one in particular that had some importance here. There's two preemptions, and they're both named after cases, of course, because developed from case law. So one is called the Garmin preemption, and it is not uh, at issue here, but that forbids states from regulating activities that Congress uh, expected the NLRA to protect or prohibit itself. The second, and that's the one that is at issue here, is what's called the machinist exemption. It's from a case called International Association of Machinists from uh, 1976, um, and it prohibits states from restricting a weapon of self-help, that's in quotes, a weapon of self-help that could be used by employers or employees in collective bargaining, such as strike or lockout. So if a a state law impedes or specifically infringes on the um, ability of a either side, employee or employer, to utilize a weapon of self-help in the collective bargaining process, that is preempted under the machinist preemption. So obviously the, the plaintiffs here were, were seeking the application of, of that preemption and so doing to, to enjoin the city from enforcing this wage ordinance, but they were unsuccessful at the district court level. Is that correct? That's right. So what they did is they went in for a preliminary injunction. And one of the things you have to do when you try to get a preliminary injunction is you have to convince the court at the outset that you have a likelihood of success on the merits. And so in this case, it was, uh, you know, kind of a pure legal question before the district court. And the district court determined that they were not likely to prevail on the merits. It looks like for pretty much the same reasons that the Ninth Circuit ruled the way they did. And therefore, they uh, they appealed to the Ninth Circuit. Maybe just for a second before we get into the Ninth Circuit's ruling, I might ask a couple of general questions here about, about the ordinance. I'd be curious to know why you thought the plaintiffs here might have thought they had a chance of successfully getting an injunction. This seems like a relatively straightforward ordinance that, as the the panel noted, um, has some predecessors that are are similar to it. Passing minimum wage laws seems, uh, courts have seemed to um, accept is within the purview of municipalities and and states. Is there something unique about 
this uh, this ordinance that made it potentially more vulnerable in the eyes of plaintiffs to an injunction? Yeah, well, as I said before, I think the coupling of the ordinance together with the opt-out provision makes it, you know, kind of a little more suspect. Obviously, we know that the state passes minimum wage laws that apply to everybody. And so to say that a minimum wage law affects collective bargaining, well, of course it does. And what the Ninth Circuit explained, though, is that that kind of just affects the backdrop. It affects, if you want like a cards analogy, it affects sort of the cards that they bring to the table, but it doesn't necessarily affect the rules of the play and, you know, the rules of how you play the game. And what the Ninth Circuit said is if it's affecting the rules of how you play the game. That's one thing. If it's just affecting sort of the backdrop, you know, of course, everybody comes to the table, to the bargaining table with certain laws, and those laws are in place. And any employment lawyer knows there's a whole host of non-negotiable rights that an employee has that you cannot bargain away. You can't bargain away the right to, uh, to overtime if you're a, a non-exempt employee. You can't bargain away the right to minimum wage under the California statute. I mean, that's just the way it is. So what the court basically said is that is not something that, you know, we're worried about. I think the reason they thought that they had a chance here is because it was brought together with this opt-out provision. Because in a funny way, that really does kind of funnel you towards a union representation. And so you could say it empowers unions. And, and also, I think another reason that they thought they had a chance is because in the end, like a lot of things in the law, this concept of not affecting weapons of self-help is a sliding scale, right? So it's, it, it is helpful, if you want me to go into them, is that there's a couple of other cases that the Ninth Circuit cites to that I think are helpful, just sort of as, as, a, as a contrast. For example, and here's an example where the U.S. Supreme Court, and, the, and these were cited too in the, in the Ninth Circuit decision, where the U.S. Supreme Court said, these are weapons of self-help and you're not allowed to affect them. So first one, there was one in 1986 called Golden State Transit Corp versus City of Los Angeles. And what happened there is you had a taxicab franchise that was in the midst of a strike. And in the midst of the strike, the city said, well, look, we're not going to renew your franchise, you know, your right to franchise, unless you settle this strike by a certain date. And the Supreme Court said this. They said, no, 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 you can't do that because a legitimate uh, weapon of self-help for an employer is the ability to wait out a strike. And by putting an artificial deadline on it, you are effectively preventing them from using that particular weapon of self-help. Another example was a case called Chamber of Commerce versus Brown from 2008. It's another U.S. Supreme Court case. And in that case, there was an assembly bill that prohibited uh, several classes of employers that receive state funds from using the funds to, quote, assist, promote, or to deter union organizing. And again, what the Supreme Court said is, you know, it's long been established under machinists that there is a zone of activity that is protected and that is, you know, non-coercive speech. If an employer wants to try and persuade their employees not to unionize, that is something that you can't try to hinder through a statute that pulls the purse strings if you use money for certain purposes. So those are two examples where the machinist exemption was found to bar the uh, operation of the law. I think what it shows is that this preemption is to some degree a sliding scale, 
because, you know, at what point does your law so drastically affect the background that you're effectively preventing the employer or the employee from uh, utilizing a, quote, weapon of self-help? I mean, you know, the ability to bargain for your wages in a sense, or bargain against, is, is also a weapon of self-help, arguably. So it is a little bit of a sliding scale. And I think that is why, you know, the hotel associations thought that they might have a, a chance of convincing a district court or the Ninth Circuit, but it was on, you know, the machinist's preemption side. But as we see, this ordinance did not go far enough on that sliding scale to, to trigger the machinist preemption. Not according to the Ninth Circuit, that's right. Perhaps we could tease out this exception a little bit more for the, the unionized hotel workers. It seems like there's some some different dynamics at play, as you suggest. On its face, this wage ordinance is designed to to increase the wages of hotel workers citywide. But as you say, it could incentivize hotels to, to collectively bargain with its employees and hire union hotel workers who then, under this provision, could be paid less than that, that set wage floor. So, you know, an ordinance designed to raise wages could, in fact, incentivize employers to make arrangements so as to pay workers less than that. But as you say, there are other benefits to being a part of a yeah, collective bargaining agreement for, for employees, right? Yeah, I, I think the idea behind the opt-out is to give the unions and whoever is representing the interests of the employees in the collective bargaining situation as many um, kind of bargaining chips as as possible. So the the ability to bargain about wages is, is one bargaining chip. I, I think they would say it is a way of giving the unions more flexibility. I think its effect, of course, is to pressure the hotels that are non-unionized to become unionized if they want to avoid the effect of this uh, minimum wage ordinance. And that, that seemed to be one of the contentions made by the appellant's counsel before the Ninth Circuit is that you know, this ordinance is just sort of unfair to hotels that do not have unionized labor and unionized hotels would be able to pay their workers a little bit less potentially than this wage order mandates non-union hotels pay. Why did that argument not prevail before the panel? Well, you know, it's interesting. The opinion, the written opinion spends remarkably little time talking about it. It's, it's the last section and by it, I mean the opt-out part of the ordinance. It's the last section of, of the opinion before the conclusion. As I count, it, it consists of about three sentences. You know, they say the Supreme Court has made clear that the NLRA, quote, casts no shadow on the validity of these familiar and narrowly drawn opt-out provisions. And so, you know, they don't deal with it very much. And, and one thing that they don't do is they also don't really deal with it kind of in combination. You know, they kind of deal with the minimum wage and the um, ordinance and its opt-out, you know, analytically separately. It would be interesting to see if they, you know, kind of dealt with them together. Does that push the weight in favor of, of this being uh, within the machinist exception? I think that does make this case more uh, questionable as far as its reasoning. Because if you if you were to analyze those two parts of the, the wage order, which, you know, obviously are together within the order, the, the minimum wage and the, the opt-out. As you suggest, it seems like that could be read as more of a, an influence on the mechanics of collective bargaining if, if the wage order is sort of under the surface an incentive for hotels to hire unionized labor or to engage in collective bargaining. Is that why it would potentially be more likely to trigger the preemption? Exactly. It's definitely a reason why you could argue that the, that the preemption uh, should be triggered in this particular case is because 
that does arguably affect a, a weapon of self-help. For an employer to have a, a minimum wage law, which they have to pay, but if they allow collective bargaining arrangement, if they allow a union in the door, well, then that's okay. Then they don't have to worry about this law. And so the, the ability to unionize or the ability to, to you know, dissuade, as we know from these other cases, the, the ability to you know, try and persuade your employees not to unionize, these rights of non-coercive speech are protected. And so in a sense, the law funnels the employer towards perhaps having to accept unionized labor when they wouldn't otherwise be inclined to. And that landscape is changed by the statute. So you can characterize it in both ways. You could say this just affects the backdrop. This doesn't affect the rules of how the two sides of the employer-employee relationship utilize weapons of self-help in the, in the bargaining process. But in another sense, it does affect the weapon of self-help that the uh, employers have with respect to whether they have a benefit from trying to avoid uh, unionized labor. It, it, it changes the landscape in, in such a strong way that I think you can argue that it does affect a uh, weapon of self-help. Again, it's a sliding scale under Machina to some extent. So I think both sides of the argument can, can make their points. Yeah, so as, as you suggest, it seems like a case that could have come down either way and been and been defensible. Do you think that the panel got this one right? Would you, um, if you had all of a sudden plenary Ninth Circuit power, would you have ruled differently? You know, I, I, I'm going to fall back on saying that I don't have all the records in front of me that the Ninth Circuit had. I think that certainly there is case law that they discuss which uh, establishes certain limits on the exemption. You know, they talk about the uh, Metropolitan Life case where there was a law that, that basically said that uh, general insurance policies and health care plans had to provide specific mental health care benefits. And the argument was that that was preempted because that imposed a contract term that otherwise would have been the subject of collective bargaining. And the Supreme Court ha- said, no, that that's not a proper interpretation of, of machinists because the law was, you know, really an insurance regulation designed to implement the policies of mental health. And, you know, as such, it was a valid, unexceptional exercise of of the state's police power. Again, something that certainly affects the backdrop of the collective bargaining situation. You've taken some chips off the table that can't be used to bargain anymore. But the courts have said, you know, that's okay. Another case was a case called Fort Halifax, another U.S. Supreme Court case, where the court uh, had a uh, for a, a Maine law from the state of Maine that required employers to provide a one-time severance payment to employees affected by plant closures unless the employment contract dealt with severance pay. And when the employer argued that the law was preempted because it intruded again on the collective bargaining process, you know, the court said that no, states have a right to regulate employment conditions. So I think that there's definitely support for the way the Ninth Circuit uh, came out here. I think given, you know, the fact that the opt-out provision is kind of coupled with this thing, I think that could have given the Ninth Circuit a basis to rule the other way as well. Noting that, then, would you say there's any chance this case could find itself before the United States Supreme Court? You know, I don't know. It's, the U.S. Supreme Court always has a lot of writs uh, with a lot of interesting sure. issues before it. Um, and they certainly have heard a lot of cases in the past on the machinist preemption, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they did take it. On the other hand, there's always a lot of things drawing the attention of the U.S. Supreme Court, so I, I wouldn't uh, try to predict whether they would take this one up. 
Maybe one last one, if you could elucidate some of the, the bigger takeaways from this ruling, either, say, for the city of Los Angeles or other municipalities that might enact similar ordinances or for employment lawyers that, that practice in cases that where these, these issues are important. I think, you know, definitely this Ninth Circuit ruling has, has put the stamp of approval on a uh, any state ordinance that couples a um, minimum wage ordinance together with an opt-out provision. I don't think it's going to put to rest the argument over exemptions to the NLRI. Anytime you have a, a test that is to some extent, you know, kind of context-specific sliding scale, I think you're going to find, you know, that it, it's going to be challenged, especially because, you know, as a practical matter, the businesses have a lot at stake here. Clearly here, the, the hotel associations thought it was worth their while to try and challenge this. I don't think that reality is going to change as a result of this ruling. Yeah, that line between elements of the employment employee backdrop and um, elements that pertain to the mechanics of, of that relationship does seem to be a bit fuzzy. I'm sure there's plenty of enterprising attorneys out there that wouldn't be dissuaded from this ruling and, and challenging similar ordinances. Never rule out the ability of enterprising attorneys. <laughs> well, in the meanwhile, uh, thanks very much, Mr. Michael Newman from Hinshaw and Culbertson for joining the podcast to discuss this case. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure uh, speaking with you today. Once more, that was Michael Newman of Henshaw and Culberson discussing the Ninth Circuit ruling from last week regarding the wage order ordinance pertaining to hotel workers citywide. Let's hear now from Jerry Mooney of Rutan and Tucker. I'm very happy now to be joined by Mr. Jerry Mooney, a partner with Rutan and Tucker in Orange County and the chair of their appellate practice group and also a partner in the, the trial section. Mr. Mooney, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're chatting about the case of Walters versus Businger today, uh, an appellate ruling from this month that regarded a, a quiet title action and specifically whether such an action can be time barred when it's based on, an, on a deed that was void ab initio. Initio. <laughs> Not sure I got the Latin right there. Um, and I understand there's been a bit of uncertainty in the California courts as to that specific question. So the ruling here provided some clarity in saying that statutes of limitation could indeed apply. But before we get into the ruling, maybe we could start at the beginning here. Who are these two parties, Walters and Businger, and what uh, what are they fighting over? So uh, Scott Walters uh, was the appellant, and he was also the administrator of his father, Randy Walters' estate. And then Valerie uh, Businger was the respondent and uh, was Randy, the father's uh, ex-girlfriend. And Randy filed suit in April 2013 against uh, against Valerie Businger. Uh, he was seeking to partition uh, their interest in, in some real property. Uh, and Valerie answered Randy's complaint. And then shortly thereafter, Randy passed away and Scott substituted in uh, as the name plaintiff in his father's stead. And in an amended answer and cross-complaint, uh, Valerie argued that she and Randy held the property as joint tenants under a February 2003 deed, uh, and that with Randy's passing, she now had full title to the property because of the right of survivorship under joint tenancy. Uh, Scott, on the other hand, argued that the 2003 deed uh, was void ab initio or from its inception uh, for a host of reasons uh, that uh, that we can get into, uh, but uh, that essentially he sought to quiet title by 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 canceling that deed. Maybe we could back up a little bit earlier than that 2003 deed. So take me back to when this real property was acquired by Mr. Walters, uh, Randy, 
and, and Miss Businger. I believe that was 1997, and they purchased it together as not joint tenants, but tenants in common, correct? That, that's right. And according to Scott's uh, complaint, Randy and Valerie purchased the property as tenants in common, as you said, in, in 1997. Uh, Randy provided the larger down payment and so acquired a 66.7% interest, and Valerie obtained uh, the remaining 33.3% interest. Then in 2003, and, and it appears from the opinion that the parties both acknowledge this, uh, Randy and Valerie, as part of a loan finance, uh, executed and recorded a deed granting ownership of the property from themselves as tenants in common, Randy holding two-thirds and uh, and Ms. Boozinger holding one-third, uh, to themselves as joint tenants. And the deed used the language joint tenants. Uh, and then it gave no indication of their relative percentage interests, uh, which makes sense because joint tenants uh, have a unity of interest in, in property. Right. Okay. So that's that's the principal difference here between ten, tenants in common and, and joint tenants that there's there's unity in in the ownership. Right. There's actually a few uh, significant differences between them. Both are shared forms of ownership of real estate, um, but tenants in common uh, can have different percentage ownerships of property, uh, and they can acquire their interests at different times by different instruments. Uh, joint tenants, on the other hand, uh, hold equal interest in the property and they acquire their interests at the same time by the same instrument. Um, and then also significantly, joint tenants have uh, what's what's called a right of survivorship where the ownership interest of a deceased joint tenant passes automatically to the surviving joint tenant, whereas with tenants in common, uh, the uh, an individual's interest becomes part of their estate when they pass away. Could you tell me a bit more about the 2013 action brought by Randy before his passing? He sought to, to partition the, the real property? Yes. Uh, so in April 2013, uh, Randy filed a complaint uh, with a single cause of action for partition. He alleged that he held 66.7% interest in the property uh, and that Ms. Boozinger uh, owned a 33.3% interest, and he sought to have the court force uh, Ms. Boozinger to buy his interest. Shortly after that filing, he passes away, and, and Scott Walters essentially steps into this litigation but adds um, the quiet title action. That's right. Okay. Now, why exactly, as you hint, does, does Scott contend that 2003 deed did not have the legal effect that Ms. Boosinger claims essentially of turning the tenancy in common into a joint tenancy. What, what was wrong with that deed? Why does he claim it's, it's void ab initio? So what Scott contends is that uh, Randy and Ms. Boosinger, uh, his father and Ms. Boosinger purchased the property's tenants in common in 1997. Uh, he acknowledges the existence of the 2003 grant deed, which refers to uh, his father, Ms. Boozinger, as joint tenants, uh, but he alleges that uh, the two of them never owned the property as joint tenants, and his explanation uh, is that this deed was part of a larger loan refinance transaction um, in which a friend of Ms. Boozinger uh, served as broker's representative. And uh, what Scott alleges, Scott Walters alleges, is that 
this uh, broker breached her duty to Randy because uh, she, what he says is, knew or should have known that Randy was chemically dependent and an alcoholic during the 2003 refinancing process. And on that basis, he alleges that the 2003 conveyance was a void. So now obviously that, that conveyance, that deed was from 2003. Scott's suit began in 2013, quite a bit of intervening time there. So Ms. Businger in a demur raises a, a statute of limitations defense based principally on the fact that that deed was from 2003, but also based on the fact that I think there was some, there were some legal filings in 2007 that should have certainly alerted either Randy or Scott to the fact that the deed had, had changed the, the property interest to a, a, a joint tenant situation. And then in his opposition, Scott contends that statutes of limitations do not apply when, as here, like you say, the legal instrument, the deed, is, is void from its, uh, from its inception. Is that roughly how the, uh, the back and forth went there? Yes, that's correct. Okay. As we hinted at at the top, um, there's been some uncertainty as, as to that specific question, whether statutes of limitations could apply when, when legal instruments are, are void from their inception and so never taking legal effect. Can you tell me a bit more about that uncertainty? So as the Court of Appeal uh, in, in the Walters decision discusses, there are published cases um, that provide that where an instrument is void uh, from its inception, void ab initio, that it may be challenged at any time, irrespective of the passage of statutes of limitations. And, uh, you know, for instance, Wiccan's summary, uh, California law, uh, discusses that law, um, although it largely concludes statute of limitations do apply, but it nevertheless acknowledges contrary authority. Uh, and there is also dicta, which the Walters Court discusses, uh, in relatively recent cases, uh, stating that uh, there is not an applicable statute of limitations. And that's not necessarily surprising. There are other states uh, where one may challenge a void instrument at any time. And, and in fact, in 2015, uh, New York's highest court uh, held that the statute of limitations there uh, did not bar an action to cancel a mortgage, uh, which was based upon a forged deed where a party allegedly forged her father's signature on a deed, um, and the court discussed that as being void ab initio, and, and also discussed that there are other states uh, where, where that's the law. Notwithstanding that uncertainty, the trial court here did sustain Ms. Businger's demur on the, the statute of limitations question, correct? That is right. Okay. Getting into the, the appellate ruling, I believe, sort of at, a, at the outset of its analysis, the court notes there there is no set statute of limitations that you've hinted at for quiet title actions. However, other statutes of limitations can apply. So walk me through how that could happen, or what exactly they're referring to there. Sure. So what the court of appeal recognized is that while there are several statute of limitations that may be applicable to a quiet title action, um, it's not the case that there is no applicable statute of limitations simply because a party claims an underlying instrument is void from its inception. And what the court is discussing is that the statute of limitations applicable to a quiet title action typically depends on the nature of the underlying claim. In other words, the basis on which title is, is at issue. For instance, fraud 
which is typically subject to a three-year statute of limitations or adverse possession, typically subject to a five-year statute, uh, cancellation of an instrument, typically subject to four-year statute of limitations. And I believe it was fraud that was the, the underlying claim for relief here um, for, with right. relation to the 2003 deed. Okay, That's right. It seems like an, another companion issue here is perhaps the difference between something being void from its inception, a legal instrument just never having legal effect, and also um, a legal instrument that is voidable. Um, so potentially there's something wrong with it, but it's not void from its inception. It, it takes legal effect, but it, it could be voidable subsequently. Right? There's some discussion as to the difference between those two. Right. So uh, it's not actually always a straightforward distinction. So, you know, void ab initio essentially just means that whatever the instrument is, is void from the outset. Uh, in other words, that the document has no legal effect from the start. Um, and, you know, some examples might be a contract to commit a crime or a minor's contract involving real property. And another example, which might be more appropriate here, is where a person is without understanding then purportedly enters into a contract, then the contract is is void. Um, or excuse me, void ab initio. Void, on the other hand, or, or voidable, means that the document has some legal effect and may continue to do so until such time as, as the party who's wronged challenges the document. So examples there might include um, fraud or duress. Um, another example uh, is where a party to a contract lacked some but not all understanding in, in entering into the contract. There was some, some precedent I think we've hinted at that, that Scott referred to in his filings suggesting that legal instruments void ab initio are or do not have a statute of limitations that can apply to them. He included even a California Supreme Court precedent to that effect, right? There is a California Supreme Court precedent, right, that the Court of Appeal did did cite, yes. Uh, but that notwithstanding, this appellate court, essentially, I, I believe, held there there wasn't necessarily a, a meaningful difference between void ab initio deeds and just voidable legal instruments, and that in either case, statute of limitations could apply. Is that roughly how they came down? I think that's right. I, I don't know that the court um, held that, or, or definitively held anyway, that there's never a difference between void and void ab initio in, in terms of uh, statute of limitations. Um, but on the other hand, uh, what they did hold is that uh, because a just because an instrument is void ab initio does not mean there is no applicable statute of limitations. Um, so, and the the cases that Scott uh, Walters relied upon, uh, the Court of Appeal held did not support his contention, largely because the language in them was dicta. Uh, and then with regard to the California Supreme Court case, Loftus versus Marshall from 1901, uh, the court noted that it was primarily considering whether uh, the action of the plaintiff there was barred by a former judgment rather than statute of limitations. And the Court of Appeal also noted that that decision had effectively been overruled by another Cal, uh, California Supreme Court decision, Moss, which was decided uh, 41 years later. Okay, so then the upshot is, is Mr. Walter's claim was, was properly time-barred by, by the trial court. Do you think that was the right result here? Um, should statute of limitations apply to instruments like this that are void from the outset? Are there any policy arguments on the other side? 
In terms of this case, I, I think the outcome makes sense, um, particularly given the facts. You noted uh, previously that there had been proceedings in 2007 involving Scott's father and Miss Miss Boozinger, and there I believe it was a, a domestic violence restraining order proceeding in which Miss um, Boozinger had affirmatively stated her interest in the property. Um, and in other words, giving Randy, uh, the father, uh, clear notice that she had a claim adverse to his in the property. Um, and, uh, and Randy took no action uh, to protect his rights. Um, and, and I think that was a very big hurdle for, for Scott to have to get over. Um, I also think the court notes that there is substantial case law contrary to uh, Scott's, uh, Scott Walter's position, um, a number of cases that the court cites uh, in its decision. Uh, and the Court of Appeal notes that uh, Scott Walters did not actually address any of that case law, uh, which I think probably hurt him uh, with, with the Court of Appeal. In terms of the of the the policy question you asked about, you know, whether this was uh, or whether there should be a statute of limitations applicable to instruments that are void uh, from their inception, I can certainly see an argument that uh, the passage of time should not render what would otherwise be a void instrument enforceable. Uh, so I can certainly see that position, but on the other hand, I also think there's something to be said for finality, especially here where the decedent had the opportunity to protect his interests and, and didn't do so. Okay, maybe then to wrap up, let's zoom out a bit. In your opinion, what are some of the, the biggest takeaways from this ruling for real estate attorneys? And perhaps uh, we discussed some competing policy concerns, or do you think there's a chance that the, the state high court could take up this case? You know, given the weight of the authority, um, which the the Walters case discusses over a number of page, pages, including a case from as recently as 2015, Salazar versus Thomas, um, and also Robertson Robertson versus Superior Court from 2001, uh, given the weight of that case law, I, I don't know that this is a case the California Supreme Court. Uh, would take up. And the treatises I mentioned before, Wiccan, um, have likewise recognized that while those cases uh, regarding the lack of a statute of limitations do exist, uh, the weight of the case law is that there is an applicable statute of limitations, depending on the, the subject matter of the claim, fraud, adverse possession, whatever it might be. But in terms of the takeaway for, for real estate lawyers and, and for uh, for for litigators, I would say it's be conservative. Uh, you know, the existence of a case that might support a later filing uh, or give you some uh, comfort that there is not a statute of limitations, uh, you know, may, might not be all that, that you expect it is. Um, and uh, I would also say be sure to consider in in the specifics the underlying facts regarding when the claim was uh, was discovered and uh, the facts underlying uh, the instrument being void so that you can make sure that you're bringing in action on a timely basis. Well, certainly an interesting ruling. We'll leave it there for now. Mr. Jerry Mooney, thanks very much for discussing the case with us on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
And with that, our program for September 2nd, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to all of my guests, Ms. Sharon Arkin, Mr. Michael Newman, and Mr. Jerry Mooney. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. It's much appreciated, and I'd like to remind you one more time that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this show by virtue of your taking a simple true-false test you can find on our site where this podcast appears. Thanks also to members of my production team here, Ellen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, Nick Sonnenberg, Dominic Fricasa, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great long Labor Day weekend. <laughs>